How has the fuel oil market reacted to the Biden-McCarthy debt ceiling deal and everything you need to know about ammonia? All this and more on Freight Up. Hello and welcome to Freight Up. My name's Fernanda and I'll be your host as we navigate the seas of freight and commodities. This week we are back with a full lineup with Kieran Walsh joining us to give us an update on the ammonia market. You'll get your usual fuel oil update by your favorite broker, Archie Smith, better known by his ICE name, Ace Smith 7, a Ferris update all the way from Shanghai, China by Hao Pei, and finally, a voice that you've definitely missed, a freight update by our head of business development, Carrie Deal. All this and more on Freight Up. Freight Up! The ammonia industry is kicking off, and we are quickly heading into the next generation of ammonia, green ammonia. In a minute, you'll be hearing from Kieran Walsh, our ammonia broker, on the state of the market and its future. But first, to give us some context on the infrastructure surrounding the ammonia market, here's strategic advisor to FIS, Richard Stevenson. Welcome, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. So you've been involved in a number of clean fuel infrastructure projects with a bit of an emphasis on the ammonia space. And now you're a strategic advisor to FIS. So I'd love to hear your view on the ammonia market. The ammonia market can broadly be sliced into two buckets. One is the, the dominant bucket, which is the gray ammonia produced by the Harbour Bosch process, which processes natural gas to extract hydrogen, combines it with nitrogen to create NH3. And that's what's used primarily in the fertilizer industry. And again, that's the dominant process of producing ammonia at the moment. That obviously has very negative impact because methane is a very strong uh, greenhouse gas. The byproduct of that process is methane. So that's one element. And then the green ammonia, which is much more an area I've been involved with more recently on the infrastructure side, uses extracts hydrogen from water using the electrolysis process with renewable energy. And that's really the the hot topic at the moment, even though it's a relatively small percentage because certain supply chains are set in their ways and it requires a lot more investment. At the same time, this is really the, the buzz topic for the future. The question is, how long would it take to get there? So what are the inherent barriers to green ammonia adoption now? Well, in short, it's capital and infrastructure, and they're obviously related, but some of the major players need to invest now to produce molecules for the future. And in order to invest now, they are obviously driven by their shareholders' wills, and their shareholders aren't willing to take huge amounts of risks, and therefore they need to some extent offtake agreements in order to invest now to deliver later, and those offtakes need to be a fixed price. So there's a lot of price risk associated with taking a view. And even though the, the futures market is it's nascent, but it's developing, it's quite far away from being able to hedge major infrastructure outputs on the green element particularly well. So there's a lot of risk associated with that. Offtakes are required. And something like shipping, for example, which is a very fragmented industry compared to, say, the power industry, in order to get an offtake, you have to have a massive consortium of shipping companies, like all the container lines, for example, all coming together and agreeing to buy green ammonia in the future at some fixed price today, which is quite a challenge. Uh, and also, because the, the say engine technology of shipping is still relatively nascent compared to, say, methanol, which is an alternative shipping fuel that's ready now and it's much easier to handle, much less toxicity, the ship, let's say the largest container lines with the longest views 
are investing in what they can invest in now, which is methanol carriers and let's say to some extent LNG carriers. And the more they invest in those, the less they invest in things to come in the future. So it's unlikely that they're going to invest heavily into offtake agreements for green ammonia to fill vessels that aren't available today. And hence the reason why it's taking a bit of time. There are some really, really good initiatives going on in Singapore where they are they are pushing as much as is possible to get safety standards agreed, but it's taking time. And for that reason, it's, it feels like it's going to be a, a tipping point where once certain process things such as safety are put in place to handle ammonia going into ships, then bunkering infrastructure takes place and gradually things move along. And then at that point, when people get comfortable, investments start and then the acceler- acceleration process starts. And that's, I think, where you'd have, let's say, a competitive bid from the shipping industry for green ammonia. Whereas in the power industry, where, for example, in Japan, you have power plants that are willing to take those offtakes, the power plants themselves are consolidated bids with long-term views, so they can much more comfortably sign offtake agreements that are required for companies today to invest, deliver molecules tomorrow. So that's, that's where you're seeing a shift, but still, it's, it's relatively small compared to the Graham-Ernia side because of the existing infrastructure and the associated capex, as explained. Yeah, so essentially the infrastructure exists to produce and adopt gray ammonia, whereas there is a financial and infrastructure barrier to the adoption of green ammonia. Yes, for the time being. And I think time will solve that problem. Certain things need to happen in order for, for, for other things to happen. So there's a lot of conditionality. So first someone needs to take a risk and then someone needs to make an investment. Then molecules are produced gradually. That price then drops, makes it more attractive and, and it's just a self-reinforcing process, but from the shipping side, it relies quite heavily on technological development, which means the production of ships, or the manufacturing of ships that have engines that can burn ammonia, and then the safety regulations that allow uh, procedures to be put in place to bunker and handle ammonia as a, as a shipping fuel, and, and then associated scaling up of renewable energy infrastructure, you know, offshore wind would be a perfect example of the the type of renewable infrastructure that complements well. And I think, for example, in the north of England, around the Immingham area, where you have, you know, 90 miles into the North Sea, you have the largest wind farm, offshore wind farm, and it's expanding. You have a big drive towards hydrogen-based industries and subsequent ammonia uh, and clean ammonia, green ammonia uptakes. And it's all feeding through to that process. But the the engines that will allow for the burning of this fuel will start to hit the water in 2025. They're in shipyards now. There's a lot of ammonia-ready vessels, which can be converted from, I think, LNG. So it, it's a process. It takes time. It's heavy infrastructure. It's lots of capex and there's market risk. But in the end, these things are already in play and, and the, the tide is, is is flowing in this direction. So from 27 to 30, you'll start to see these things these vessels hit the water. Pricing, if we can use other markets as references, should come down with the supply component at this time. Initiatives from the EU with the 55 and the associated fuel initiatives should start to play a major part there. And then it'll just be a case of pricing differentials versus methanol and the associated. So at the very least, between 2030 and 2040, it should be a significantly part, significant part of the fuel mix. So it sounds like the tide's turning, but the voyage there is ripe with first mover opportunities. 
Yes, the, the first mover opportunity is not the type of thing that shipping has historically embraced. But I, I think there will probably have to be a bit more in the way of government action to de-risk first movers. If first movers are well primed to take advantage of that, then that's likely to be a, a way that people can take advantage in a positive sense. Fascinating context. Thank you so much, Richard. Pleasure. We are live here with Kieran Walsh, our ammonia broker. How are you doing, Kieran? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Fernanda. How are you? Great. Fantastic to have you. So ammonia is one of those really interesting commodities going into the future and with decarbonization efforts, etc. Ammonia is really, I mean, incredibly interesting and a key sort of part of energy transition and, and decarbonization to an extent. It's a convenient way of moving energy from A to B in a molecule form. It's a reasonably economically viable way and obviously it has a number of different applications for as i say as kind of an engine fuel power station fuel co-firing and uh denoxing of coal power plants and again you know obviously aviation ship and indeed car and i guess it's one of the most efficient and cheapest ways to transport hydrogen as well so if you're kind of thinking about the Europe's energy future and Japan, Korea, Malaysia's energy future, ammonia is going to be a huge part. Remember, you think a country like Japan or Germany, there will always be net energy ex importers, and ammonia is one of the most obvious and cleanest ways to import green energy. So the big question in the ammonia space right now is when will green ammonia start having an impact and what will that impact be? As I say, pe people are you know turning renewable energy, renewable electricity into green ammonia now and those, those projects are continuing to come on stream. So, I mean, from now till the foreseeable future, I mean, like, that's it's quite a, a difficult question to answer precisely. But in terms of, of volumes and uh, megawatts generated, they're going to exponentially increase. And I guess you, you'll, from the middle of next year, be very significant in terms of the, the seaborne ammonia trade in inverted commas. So how is the market performing? The market's fairly bearish. I, I suppose the ammonia market, full stop, has been sort of coming off from a high of around 1300 bucks in December to about 350 so that's that'll be the ammonia price in northwest europe today and again that's that's what i'm referencing for the december price so the russia ukraine war obviously had a big impact on supply but obviously like a lot of other supply chains and commodities it's it's adjusted so the, the world is fairly well supplied with it the price is coming off it's again i suppose i'm Bottom pickers get get smelly fingers. I'm not saying it's the bottom now, but certainly we're we're flatlining to a degree. Again, if we're kind of looking looking at urea, that's come off significantly as well. So, and again, the the two commodities have sort of similar inputs and and kind of price action. Ammonia can lag a little bit slower than than urea. So that's where the market is really in a fairly bearish, well supplied sort of state. There's plenty of availability demand is lower than perhaps producers hope. For our audience members that are interested in hedging their risk when it comes to ammonia, 
what tools are available to them? So at present, we obviously have the Ice Argus Northwest Europe Futures contract, which FIS has 100% market share in broking. We, we broke the first contract about six weeks ago, which was a, a significant milestone in the development of this market. So that's available, again, through your clear, and, and we can obviously execute it for you. Going forward, I think there's liable to be a, a number of other different contracts. I understand a couple of the other exchanges have projects on the way to develop their own uh, contracts, which would include the US Gulf and East Asia. And again, using a variety of, of index providers, but Argus in some instances, Verticon in others, I believe. And the shop is, the FIS hedging shop is open. So if you need to hedge, manage risk, or indeed you want to take a speculative position or spread it against another commodity like TTF or Urea or Japanese power even, do get in touch and we'd be delighted to help you. And we'll go ahead and link Kieran's details down in the description below. One last question for you, Kieran, before we let you back into the bullpen. For our audience, for those watching the ammonia space, what would you advise they keep an eye on going into the next week? As I say, any any physical sales, and I, and I guess as well, we've obviously got firm numbers out, Q3, Q4, and, and in the front months on the futures. So again, futures prints on the ICE contract, and any more sort of, I guess, US to Northwest Europe sales would give a kind of an indication of where the market's at. Obviously, we had the Yara Mosaic prints on the Tamper Index at, at 340 at the end of last week. And it'd be interesting to see if there's any further price action at those levels. The levels we're kind of seeing in the market at the moment feel like buyers are kind of limbering up to, to again, prepare to make purchases. Again, we, we saw Borealis uh, buy at 368 from Algeria last week. So uh, more cash market activity in a nutshell, basically. Exciting times in the world of ammonia. Thank you so much for joining us, Garen. You're very welcome. All right, we'll see you next time. Up next, the fuel oil market with Archie Smith. So, Archie, where we left the fuel oil market last week, lots of questions, lots of uncertainty. Where are we now? Well, I mean, judging by the prices, you know, the direction they've been going in the Brent, Brent crude futures complex, we're, we're still in uncertainty, I think. At the end of this weekend, going into the beginning of next week, hopefully some of that uncertainty has been lifted. And that's because obviously we've got the OPEC meeting this weekend. But again, nobody really knows what the result of that's going to be. We've had mixed messages from major oil producing countries who are members of OPEC. You know, Saudi a few weeks ago came out saying, you know, watch out to the short sellers, which is kind of an indication that they'd cut production because, you know, that would hurt the, the short sellers of oil. It's also just incredibly cryptic. It is, it is. Yeah, I, I kind of like how colloquial it is, you know, watch <laughs> out. <laughs> what does that mean? Like a toxic um, girlfriend, you don't uh, know. Uh, exactly, exactly. And then you he just left it and not replied. So <laughs> it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. But, you know, then we've also ha- had Russia or some other members kind of hinting that there are going to be no changes to quotas or production. So nobody really knows what the result of this OPEC meeting's going to be. And that obviously that's creating uncertainty. And then on top of that, you've got the US debt ceiling talks. Not much faith in the uh, current debt ceiling deal, I take it. No. So obviously there was, you know, a deal kind of somewhat struck, but I know it's it needs to pass through Congress and 
the way that the market's going indicates that not many people think it's going to pass because, Ouch. yeah, I mean, <laughs> yesterday in particular, we, you know, we were down over 4% on the day. I think we settled around $73 something and that's it. That's in the August future. So yeah, it's really kind of uncertain and confidence low, I'd say at the minute. And and the prices have, have been a reflection of that. So the time spreads have been keeping you quite busy then, Archie. Yeah. This is quite regular market behavior near the end of the month because people are just rolling their positions. So by uh, tomorrow, June will no longer be the front month because we'll be in June. So the front month will be July. So people are holding positions for June. They're all they're doing if they if they sell the spread, they sell the June by the July. So they're simply just rolling their front month position to next month because we're at the end of the month. We do see that 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 is kind of normally happens in the market. We see the the front spreads get sold off nearer the end of the month just because people are rolling that position. They're trading really actively, actually, uh, particularly in in the morning sing window. Um, and like I said, they're getting hit down to to eight dollars. I think they settled about eight seventy five last night. So that's a good you know seventy five cents off just in the morning. So it'd be interesting to see how they play out, see if they kind of bounce back or, or where they go from there. And, you know, on, on top of the Asian selling, we've, we've seen it kind of tighten up the, the high sulfur east-west as well, which is just the differential between the high sulfur Sing fuel oil and the high sulfur Euro fuel oil. Sing high sulfur fuel oil, it's been, it's been getting sold by Asia quite a lot, you know, whether that be because they've just got a, a surplus because, you know, they've been importing a lot of Russian crude as we know the past few months or you know kind of since since the sanctions came in that surplus supply are they just trying to shift it or you know are they just generally bearish anyway but anyway there's been a lot of selling of the high sulfur sing stuff and that has therefore kind of brought that price down so that thus tightening the spread between the the sing products and the euro products all right Archie what would you suggest our listeners keep an eye out for going into the next week Definitely the result of the OPEC meeting, which is happening on the weekend. Monday could be a pretty manic day, depending on that announcement. Should they decide to cut production, then you know we will most likely see an initial rally. The size of that rally and the duration of that rally obviously depends on how much they decide to cut production by, if that is the end decision. But I'd say, yeah, over the weekend, keep your eyes on that and, and get ready for a busy Monday, depending on the result. Exciting stuff. Thank you so much, Archie. Thank you very much. Now, a freight update with Carrie Deal. All right, Carrie, we've missed you. Welcome back from the forests of Germany. I found my way out of the forests, exactly, yeah. You did better than Hansel and Gretel, huh? <laughs> apparently, apparently. So how are the capes doing? Oh, gosh, you know, I sound like a broken record every week here, but yet another miserable week over the past week on those capes, despite the fact that we saw volumes fairly steady across both iron ore and coal, with increases actually recorded on coal exports from Australia to China. This was offset by, among other things, decreasing congestion at Chinese ports. That's really come down. And also slowing exports from Brazil. That's a lot of ton mileage from Brazil to China that gets taken out when the Brazil cargoes slow down. And the onset of rainy season in Guinea, which is slowing bauxite exports from there. Is bauxite a major export for capes? You know, those bauxite exports may seem relatively minor compared to the iron ore volumes that they carry on capes, but of course they represent a swing factor, a really key swing factor. All of this blended with what I would say overall is quite a downbeat narrative regarding Chinese growth that's taken hold, has driven the physical market down with that 5TC average on capes falling a striking 
36% over the past week since last Wednesday to $10,099. Uh, the falls in the past two days after the long weekend have been extremely sharp on the paper, with that front month June 5 TC falling 25% in the past two sessions to $12,025 value currently on FIS Live. Meanwhile, that Q3 has fallen a little more gently, but shed a couple of thousand dollars to wind up at 15800 value currently. It is worth noting this is happening on quite high volumes, and it definitely involves some stops being hit in the market. Well, surely the Panamaxes are faring better then. I wish I could tell you that. Oof. The Panamaxes present just as negative a picture, sadly. The tonnage list continued to grow in both basins throughout the past week. Cargo demand has remained more or less steady in the Atlantic. If anything, there was a touch of fresh inquiry in the past two days for a transatlantic business. Not enough to move that needle, though. And East Coast South America grains have remained lackluster despite a brief flurry of fixing activity early this week. In the Pacific, the overall cargo count looks actually pretty positive out of Indonesia, out of Australia as well. Not out of NOPAC, though. And again, that tonnage list is just too lengthy for any real positive movement in rates, which are still hanging around last done levels, quite a low level. Been grinding down all week. The Panamax paper also grinding down, not helped by that negative Cape sentiment. June 4 TC paper falling from 10,450 to 8,725 value today on FIS Live, while well, the Q3 moved down from 12,175 last Wednesday to 10,650. Amazing. And for those of us who weren't able to make it, how was eWorld? eWorld was incredible. It is Europe's largest energy exhibition and conference, a huge, huge turnout. And we were learning all about energy transition, battery metals, carbon offsets. So it was fantastic. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much, Carrie. We'll Thanks see you so next for week. That, uh, see you next week. Last but not least, your Ferris Complex update with HowPay. So, how you participated in the Baltic Exchange panel during the Enmore Shipping Conference. How was that? Oh, there are a lot of people uh, participant in that event because, in particular, during China and Asian pandemic period over the last couple of years, there's not really a shipping event, a global shipping event held in China. Oh, so this was a this was a big deal. It is. It is. A lot of people from different areas, knowledge, not limited to financial people trading at the play. There are a lot of people with, they are, they are, uh, they work in the oil industry. They're in the shipping agencies, operators, farms, and physical, commodity physical, and even some of the agricultural backgrounds, they all went to the conference to learn what's the change after the pandemic during the globalization and recession or the changes on um, uh, the technical change on the dry box ships. There are a lot of things going on. So they were trying to gather together to share views from different backgrounds and angles and trying to improve, you know, knowledge from each other and see what happens for the second half of 2023 and ongoing. So it was a really good opportunity to get a comprehensive picture of what's going to be happening later on in 2023, it sounds like. Yep. I actually gathered a couple of information from you know, people and experts or economics, analysts or traders from different backgrounds and knowledge and cross the hearing each other. Trying to... Oh, so you have gossip for us, how? 
Yep, yep. A lot of gossip and chat during the conference, tea break, coffee break, lunch break. There are a lot of them and dinner. <laughs> so, well, a different group of people, by the way. So if we go straight to the Ferris market, if we narrow down to this market, what changing on Ferris market would be uh, for the iron ore production, the shipments are expected to increase by like 10 million tons in 2023. However, that's the increase on big four, the, the four biggest the miners. For mid-small miners, the shipment expected to decrease as the drop of iron ore price take over the margin of profit by by demand and expand and growing capex. The in general, the shipment was much lower. The increase of the shipment for iron ore in 2023 is much lower than expected before because a lot of analysts are saying there will be 20 million tons of iron ore or 25 million tons of iron ore increase in 2023. So that's one difference. And the other was because of the shipping lines, the freight lines has been changed significantly after the wall sanctions. The tra- new trade unions and break of old trade unions, which changed the rules and alternatively increase the shipping expense and also increase the cargo, the phase of cargo is on the sea. So that's one on the cost side is increasing. So that's one other factor to support the overall dry dock commodities price. Uh, for the dollar's free market, we saw the construction season in China and infrastructure projects in China are both less than expected compared to 2022, but India is going to catch up with the slow growth of China. So India, they have a better infrastructure project in the first half of 2023. So we might see a lot of figures pop up and figures showing up in June and July. So all the figures are delayed. And that's one difference. And th- that's what we're thinking on the shipping and iron ore market. So in general, the iron ore pricing potentially become a narrower in the second half of 2023 instead of a direct up and down. But the, the pricing range is going to be narrower than compared to each month. But for freight market, we definitely think uh, we're confident to think the freight market has much room to grow in the second half of 2023. Uh, the conclusion when I uh, mix with different people or with different backgrounds. All right. So it looks like there are pretty significant positive indicators for the rest of the year. And those are the long term iron ore contracts and the increasing seaborne coal values. So how exactly do these factors contribute to a more favorable outlook for the late market? If you could walk me through it. Yes, I think for the iron ore market, we saw there are a lot of uh, resilient demand support. And currently, daily production in China is 2.41 million tons. That's per day, so which is higher than the same period over last year. And it's also higher than expectations because uh, a lot of males think when they enter a, re- a destocking period of time, the daily pick iron 
consumption is going to drop to 2.3 or even 2.2 million tons in four or five weeks. So the fact is uh, the consumption walked on that level for two weeks or more. So that's far beyond our expectation on iron, iron ore demand. It's much more resilient. And also, as I said before, the last question, uh, the market hasn't expected India market to be so strong in June and late May. So while if they actually started to put material, they started to build, started from late May, but the figures, statistics, they come out late in June or July. So, well, people just realize there's an Indian, there, there's an Indian demand market here. So I think that's two factors that are out of expectation. That's some of the indicators that support market and in the coming month or even H2. On that note, there are some rumors that China's going to issue a half trillion yuan support to high-end infrastructure projects. What's your take on the feasibility of this actually happening and the impact that it would have? Well, I think it's not a problem for China to issue like half of specialized debt because when we look at the demand, China issued 3.8 trillion yuan of specialized local debt in the first five months in 2022, but only 3.2 trillion yuan during the same period of specialized local debt in this year. So there is a gap of about half million have trading going level. So I think it's reasonable. The number is right. But I just doubt that is is that number to support the high-end infrastructure projects or it's just fine to catch up with the same process of last year. My opinion is from 2021, the infrastructure investment was majorly used to optimize the debt structure. So while well, China debt default amount was decreasing since Q4 2022. So I'm not arguing with the number. I think the number is right. China will issue more specialized debts in good amount in the following month or two. But I'm just doubt the, the origin or and the thing about is it support high-end infrastructure projects or is it just to optimizing the debt structure of the existing infrastructure project. So how it looks like there were many significant insights that were reached at this conference between you and your cross-industry friends. The narrower price range for the Ferris complex is definitely one of no. Is there anything else that you think that our audience should be on the lookout in this next half of 2023? Well, I think the other interesting thing is, although for the audience, we all think H2 is going to see a better shipping market, as well as a more resilient demand in all major drive-up commodities markets. However, I think most of them agree with for China, US, and Europe, and every major global economies. I mean, I, I mean, the real economy side, not including the equities might be crazy sometimes, but for the real economy, they're going to 
they're going to behave more like an L-shaped recovery instead of a V-shaped recovery expected before or expected last year. Because the real number we saw, the recovery takes significantly, the recovery is going to take more quarters than expected. Even if U.S. control the inflation, even if China lifts the control, even if Japan they had absorbed a lot of investments. So all the major economies is going to take more period of time to return to, you know, to keep 2018 or 2019 level. So I think that's one big takeaway. So it like all major economies longer period of time to return to the booming time of prosperity. Those are some significant implications from Halpay. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining, and we'll make sure to see you next time on Freight Up. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback for the show, make sure to click the microphone icon on our website, FreightUpPodcast.com, to leave us a voice note. We'll see you next week. Freight Up!